Today we are going to finish up the smallest book of the Bible, and uh, it's the third to last book, and it's a thank you card written to a man by the name of Gaius. Two weeks ago we launched into this small little book, and we, we saw three qualities that Gaius was uh, representing that we must resemble if we want to be a fellow helper of the truth. And those qualities that John listed about Gaius was that he had a spiritual healthiness. He was growing. He was effective for the Lord's work. He had a godly testimony. Other people knew about who he was and who he served. He had a generous heart. Uh, he was very hospitable to the travelers, having in guests uh, or having in speakers, missionaries, the um, speakers of the gospel, and uh, he was hosting them in his home. He was a very generous giver to their ministry. So all of this uh, comes from a life that, that Gaius lived that was demonstrating and absorbing the truth. And when we talk about the truth, we're talking about the truth of the Scriptures and the truth incarnate, that is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so our lives as followers of Christ should be one that is devoted to the truth, the Scriptures, and Jesus Christ, also one that is absorbing the truth, the Scriptures, and Jesus Christ. When we find that to be a part of our life, we will be living a life of godly living, a life of a generous heart, and one that is noticed to others as spiritually healthy. So in our text this morning, though, there's a bit of a change in the tone that takes place in 3 John. We walked away two weeks ago studying verses 1 through 8 with a very positive vibe on what John was writing this thank you card to Gaius saying, thank you for who you are, what you stand for, and what you represent. But now as it takes a little bit of a change, he gives some insight. John, he gives some insight into the first century church. The first century church had people and problems. So after studying two weeks ago, as well as today, I think all of us can walk away from 3 John saying, wow, not a lot has changed from the first century church because today we still have people and problems because of people. So that's where he's at. He is not going to hold back any information. He's not going to beat around the bush, and he is going to take this message and be very clear with it. Now, when problems in the church go unsolved, and when we're talking about problems, we're talking about conflict and disagreements within the church. Um, maybe it's um, having to smooth out some ruffled feathers within leadership of the church. Or maybe it's helping an um, angry and bitter individual work through the slander and gossip and attitude. Or maybe it's simply just taking somebody who has had their feelings hurt within the church and helping them through that process. When those things go unresolved within a local body of believers, it can begin to destroy it, sometimes very slowly, at other times very abruptly. But if it is left unchecked, it will destroy a church. And so John is going to address this so that we together can understand that it is imperative that the validity of the gospel is not undermined or destroyed because of conflict by individuals and problems that go unresolved and therefore magnified. So let's look and see what he's writing here in 3 John, verse number 9. Okay, Verse number 9, John 3. He says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them, 
receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius, Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. This morning, we're going to look at this section of verses. Very interesting that Paul is going to call out Diotrephes. He's going to praise Demetrius. And so the question we ask ourselves this morning is, who are you? Now, in this last part of the letter, John doesn't pull any punches. He shoots straight. He calls it as he sees it. And in writing the praises of Gaius, he will give the readers an opportunity to see the lives of two other men in this writing. Diotrephes, Demetrius. Now, I was going to name the message or title the message today, Die or D, which one you be. All right, that was the direction. But my wife said that may not work. Okay, so we had to go with something plain. Some of you are sitting there like, well, that works for me. That's a pretty good title. So today, not to turn this into a, a history lesson or a Bible lesson, let's look at the content and see what God wants us to see in studying these two men. Now, I know that we all want to be classified. We ask the question, who are you? We all want to say, well, I'm a Demetrius. I was talking with a friend last night. He said, what are you preaching? I told him. I told him the text. I told him the guys. I told him what's the problem. He said, well, I would like to think that I'm a Demetrius, but I have a thought that my wife and kids might call me Diotrephes. And I said, well, that's probably true for most of us. We all want to classify ourselves as Demetrius straight up, right away. We don't want to be identified as Diotrephes. But this morning, I want to ask all of us to be willing to pray and ask God to show us anything that he would bring it to our attention, whether major or minor, anything that is in our life that looks like these two men, good or bad. And then with that prompting of the Holy Spirit, as we digest that personally, that we may rejoice or be convicted, or truthfully, a little bit of both. This morning, very purposeful, we as a congregation have to approach the text with that in mind. We come very purposeful today to ask God to teach us from his text and from his message. If we let it go in one ear and out the other, and we ignore and neglect the very truths that he wants to teach us, we'll have missed out on this crucial part of worship. But if we can humble ourselves this morning and say, God, I want to be very transparent, and through your prompting today, I want you to show areas in my life that I am a Diotrephes or I'm a Demetrius. And may I rejoice over those, or may I be convicted. And at the end of our time of studying together today, may I do something about that. So let's pray together this morning. I'm going to give us all a moment to just talk alone individually to God, asking him to teach you and to work in your heart, and then I will pray very specifically for his guidance on the text. Would you join me?
as you continue in your spirit of prayer, you continue to pray as I lead. Father, we have come before you today opening ourselves to your teaching. We want so clearly to be guided on who we are. I know we all want to say that we're Demetrius. We want to be represented by this guy that is talked about in, verse, in this verse alone. But the truth is, is that if we're quiet long enough and we humble ourselves and open our heart and ears to your text, we may find that there are little points in our life that are represented by diatrophies. So Lord, if that's the case, would you make it very clear to us, bring conviction so that we can deal with it and we can learn from it and we can move on being better because of it. Our desire today is to be shaped and changed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Amen. So when we look at who are you, let's just jump right into the text and we see the contamination of Diotrephes. This is happening in verse number 9 and 10. He says, I write unto the church, that's what this thank you card has been to Gaius, but now he says, let me give warning and heed to the church. Pass this word on, he says, because Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence, so John starts this section by calling out the man Diotrephes and the contamination that he is literally bringing into the church body. Now remember, first century church were meeting in homes. And so whether it was in his home or somebody else's home that they were meeting in, he was a leader among the people in church. And he was having a negative impact. His voice was loud. He was a man that desired to be heard. He was a very opinionated individual that not only wanted others to hear him, but he really wanted to hear himself. And so here, in this pursuit of preeminence, he's going to be called out by the elder, John. And the church will be given warning to look for and to severely avoid these type of individuals. In verse number 9, we see right away a prideful heart. He says, one who loves to have the preeminence. A clear divine, defining attribute of a sinful heart is pride. When we think about the struggles in life, the sin we find ourselves in, the root cause is pride. We find ourselves that we want to, we deserve better, or I deserve the pleasure of sin for the season that it will last, or there's so much more I can do, and if I can separate myself from God's will and God's leading and trust in my own way, then I will be fine. It'll all work out in the end. And you find that many things that we struggle with day to day comes from pride. With pride comes contention. We know that even in the relationships that we have here on earth, all of those relationships, when there's contention involved, it comes not because we're the innocent party, but because there's pride in our heart. And so with this thought of pride, it's an obvious negative effect uh, that is going to cause us to forget about God. The prideful heart says, I don't need God at this moment, or I forget that God is with me, or I forget about the preeminence of Christ in my life, or I forget about God's way and I trust in myself. So pride leads us to forget about God. It also causes us to be unfaithful to God. When I have a prideful heart, I'm going to be unfaithful to him. I'm going to be faithful to myself. I'm going to pursue the lust of the flesh instead of saying no and pursuing my love and loyalty to Christ. It also causes us to be ungrateful to God. And then pride, ultimately, we see that it, uh, we become an abomination to God. 
You know Proverbs 6, 16. I love the Hebrew poetry. It says, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination. The very first one in the list of abominations to God is a proud look. So if you don't think that that's enough warning in that verse itself, look at Proverbs 16, 5. It says, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Not just a select few, not just a certain level of pride, but everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. You know what hand joining in hand means? It means even when they join forces with others, they will not go unpunished. Ever notice that sometimes people in the midst of their pride, they try to wrap themselves or surround themselves with other arrogant, selfish individuals, people that will participate in their arrogancy, people who will join hand in hand in some form of unity. And the Bible clearly says, though they join hand in hand, though they may have a crowd to follow them, though they may have some support in it, if it's, if it's fed out of pride, it will not go unpunished. In Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So pride is one of those universal setbacks that has caused mankind for centuries to struggle. Thanks to Satan entering pride into the universe when he tried to exalt himself above God. Now it didn't work out too well for Lucifer, did it? And so here this example of pride is one that sets the heart back. During the battle of the wilderness in the Civil War, Union General John Sedgwick, he was inspecting his troops. Natalie and I just got finished watching a documentary on the Civil War, lasted for several weeks. And uh, one of the, the Union generals, John Sedgwick, he at one point came to a low protective wall uh, in, in one of the trenches that was, um, he was overlooking the enemy in the direction of the enemy. His officers suggested and said that this was unwise and perhaps he ought to duck while passing this low wall. He said, well, nonsense, snapped the general. They couldn't hit an elephant from this dis... Boom. Got nailed in the eye, tragically fell to his death. What a story of pride there. The haughty spirit goes before a fall. And what is sad to see here with Diotrephes and his personal ambition is that it was corrupted actions. It wasn't that he wanted to be a leader, for there's nothing wrong with pursuing leadership, nothing wrong with being a voice to be heard, nothing wrong with standing as a strong leader, nothing wrong with that personality, but his actions were corrupted by his heart. And so he started to shun, how do we know? Because he started to shun the Christ-led authority in his life by the apostle John. So Diotrephes starts to uh, stiff arm the elder John. He starts to throw out people in the church who want to be hospitable. He starts to cause uh, problems within the church. So it wasn't that he had this personality to be a strong leader. It was that in that pursuit he had corrupted actions because of a prideful heart. And the pride had caused him to lack a desire to serve the church and glorify God. And so in essence... We find that this was someone who wanted to just not to serve others, but for them to serve himself. Now, that's total opposite of what we're taught in the New Testament with servant leadership. And he was going totally against that. Verse number 10 it continues with another description of this diatrophies. Not only the prideful heart, but then the false accusations come. He says, 
that Diotrephes was prating against us with malicious words. No one likes to be falsely accused. And some of you in here today have either in the past been falsely accused or even right now, where you are today, you are in the continual act of being falsely accused by somebody. I want you to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5.11. He said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So if you've been falsely accused or you are being falsely accused or you intend that one day you will be falsely accused, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5.11. Don't be shocked when it happens. <gasps> Why would they attack me that way? Don't be shocked. The sinful heart, the prideful heart is motivated to go much further and deeper than it really set out to be at the beginning, and it will falsely accuse. Then here's a response for all of us. Speak the truth with grace. Ephesians 4, 29 is, is a verse that we're going to look at in just a moment, and it tells us to be speakers of grace, so the hearers of our words will be, will be given grace from our language, from our tongue. And then don't become a victim with a victim mentality. That's easy to do. We wallow in it and I've been falsely accused and now I've become a victim with a victim mentality. Rise above it. Remember what they said about Jesus and his followers. Remember the New Testament church and how they were persecuted and they were lied about. Remember the men and women who had to face prison time because they were falsely accused. Think about the church and the people of the church who are being martyred all across this globe today because they're being falsely accused. And so if you have a co-worker who wants to falsely accuse you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise above that. Don't give in to their attacks. Speak the truth with grace and then pray that the Lord will defend you and that the truth will be known. And sometimes the truth is never really known. But pray that God defends you. And then above all, make sure through all of this that you guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep or guard thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. If you open your heart to the attacks, the false accusations of men... It will decay and destroy who you are. And when the heart, the abundance of who, where we live, the essence and the issues of how we live day to day, when it gets corrupted by these false accusations and the mentality of being a victim, then all of a sudden out of you spews bitterness, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. And you go into attack mode. And that's not the result that God wants us to have. And so... When we find that someone has a habitual and consistent manner of always speaking negatively and speaking falsely, you have to wonder in your heart why their life isn't showing the change that happens as a new creation in Jesus Christ. Because as a new creation in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 4, the old man's put away, the renewing of the spirit of your mind, putting on the new man. Now he says, don't speak lies. Then he says, make sure that you uh, don't give place to the devil. He says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. He says, let, uh, your, your communicate, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is to the use of edifying, building up, that the hearers may be given grace by you, the speaker. 
And so if none of that describes you, which are descriptions of the new man, you have to begin to wonder and take a heart check that says, where am I going off the pathway? What am I doing wrong? Why is my life not truly representing as a new creation in Jesus? And so here, this Diotrephes is furthest thing from a changed man. And John does not look at it very lightly. He's going to say in verse number 10, Wherefore, therefore, because of this, for this reason, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth. He says, I will call attention to his actions and his attitudes. And just like what Paul had to do with the church at Corinth, John is giving heed and warning to the first century church where Gaius and this Diotrephes and Demetrius are a part of and says, when I come, we will handle this biblically and we will deal with it publicly. And we will bring church discipline among Diotrephes for his false accusations that have been made a public statement. Now, his malicious accusations were false, they were wicked, they were selfish, they were slanderous. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we're studying through uh, the book of Psalms this summer. We only have six Wednesdays, so we're trying to get 150 Psalms in six Wednesdays. (laughs) No, we're not. We've only selected six of the most favorite, uh, most well-known Psalms. Two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, we studied Psalm 15, and we talked about the word devil means slanderer. And when we looked at that, we saw what the devil tried to do. The three times that he spoke here on earth, he tried to bring distrust to somebody's word and character. Remember in the Garden of Eden, he tried to sway Eve, or did sway Eve, to say that he didn't really mean this. That's not what it means. He's trying to bring distrust in the mind of Eve, in her husband Adam, and in what God has clearly said, not to take of the fruit. And so the devil was a slanderer. He brought distrust against somebody's character. Then in Job chapter 1 and 2, he did the same thing when he was confronted or as he went to God. And he said, if you'll just take something away from Job, he will surely turn against you. He will curse you. He won't want any more part of you if you'll just take away your hand of blessing. Again, trying to build a distrust in the character and integrity of who Job was. He was a man who was perfect and upright, spiritually mature and upright, one that feared God and hated, eschewed evil. And yet he walked through that. And though there was this distrust trying to be built, this slander, Job came through preciously. And then there's in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan approached Jesus after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and tried to tempt him to do things. And again, in reading in the text, you will see that the slanderer, tried to build distrust on the integrity of God the Father and tried to sway Jesus into doing something. That's what the devil does. He's a slanderer and he tries to build distrust against the integrity of other people. What's unfortunate is that too many churches are filled with slanderers, a representative of the devil, one who tries to build distrust in the integrity of the leadership of a church, or of the congregation as a church. And they're caught up in slandering time in and time out. And so we cannot pretend to praise God one moment at the same time we're cursing mankind with our complaining and slanderous tongue. So we try to destroy somebody's character. We try to destroy their trustworthiness and their integrity. 
as I reminded the class today in our Discover Park, Parkway class, is that our leadership is far from perfect. We're in this process of sanctification just like you are. We're pursuing holiness and trying to do right day in and day out. But in the midst of that pursuit, there are going to be things where we miss the mark, make a bad choice or a bad decision and have to recant or apologize or come back and redo or do something differently. But that never gives us reason as a church body to ever slander or to build distrust in the integrity of the church or in the trustworthiness of a leadership team. And so as a church body, we understand that our words are powerful and they ultimately reflect on our relationship to God. Let that sink in for a moment. Our words are powerful and ultimately reflect on our relationship to God. So there's no sense in us questioning everybody's salvation. We don't have to do that. That's not our business. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But when somebody lives a lifestyle habitually and continually of living a prideful heart and falsely accusing someone, slandering against the character and trustworthiness of somebody, you begin to wonder why their life does not look like Ephesians 4 as a new creation in Jesus Christ. Diotrephes wasn't there. Look at verse 10. The last part is the total disconnect Because he says, not only are they prating against us with malicious words and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren. And he forbids them that would, and he casts them out of the church. There is this total disconnect by Diotrephes. He was not just content with falsely accusing and attacking John, but now he is defiantly rejecting and connecting and receiving the brethren, the traveling messengers. When we've studied Philemon... We studied 2 John, and now here we are in 3 John. We know that the first century church, that Christians were receiving travelers. The roads that Rome had built had been a great avenue for the gospel to be spread throughout the world. And the messengers are using the roads that the Romans have built. And as they get from city to city, the churches would receive them. And so Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so would have this traveler stay in their home. And uh, we even learned that uh, Gaius was probably a recipient of some of these people. And with his generous heart, probably made them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches as he sent them on their way. Washed their clothes, mended their clothes, gave them some extra money for their travels and their next stop. That was the generous heart of Gaius. And by the way, Gaius was not the leadership team of the church. And so when we have traveling missionaries and traveling speakers and guest pastors who come through our congregation, it's not always up to the leadership team to make sure they feel welcomed and warm. It is the church body having conversation with them. It is the church body asking very specifically, how can me and my family pray for you on your travels? Hey, there's your 10-year-old. Here's an extra $20 for your next stop at Cracker Barrel because there's a lot of fun things to buy as a 10-year-old at the Cracker Barrel. Hey, here's some things for you to do, and here's some things that would be a blessing to your family. Is there something we can do to be of a help to you? That's where Parkway gathers as being a hospitable, caring church body to be a blessing to others. Now, just to give you an update on what we do here at Parkway is when we have a guest speaker traveling through. We had one last Sunday, Pastor Jack Ramos, is that correct? Uh, One of Troy Calvert's uh, Timothys in the faith as Troy was able to disciple him and uh, train him and lead him into the pastorate at the Spanish church there in Fairfax, Virginia. And he and his family traveled through. 
And what we do with guest pastors when they travel through is we have a gift bag and we give them that gift bag and it has a wonderful coffee mug with the Parkway logo on it and then it has a $50 gift card to a restaurant that they can enjoy. And that is a gift from our church family that we give to them. Now, don't you be stealing that bag from the, mission, from the pastors, all right? And, uh, now, and don't be inviting all your pastor friends to come, okay? Because we only have a limited resource on those. Uh, but that is a way for us to be a blessing to these traveling messengers. So we know that the threat to this, to the, the, the power um, in the church was then what, what he did is he refused the, the spirit of hospitality. He refused kindness, genuine friendliness. And, and, and that's complete opposite of who we are as a church. Uh, you're surrounded here with kind and genuinely friendly people who care. Uh, this is a family that is hungry for the word and, and eager to live the Christian walk while growing to be more like Jesus Christ. If you missed the fellowship last Sunday night, it's an awesome event. We packed out the cafeteria, about 140 people last Sunday night. And we had kids on the playground and on the inflatable and people in the gym playing volleyball and cornhole. And we had people in the cafeteria after eating and we did a patriotic sing. And then some people put Parkway labels on water bottles we can use for outreach. But you know what was best of all of that was seeing the, the groups of people who were just having conversation. How can we pray for you? What's going on in your life? Had one family walk up to me and say, uh, I'm really burdened about so-and-so and how can I be praying for them? Saw that so-and-so walking by, called so-and-so over and said, so-and-so, here's so-and-so. They want to know how they can pray for you. I look around an hour and a half later, those two families are still talking. And I'm like, what has happened here? Because this is the culture and heartbeat of a church that wants to live like Jesus Christ. And that is you. That is us. And that's what you're going to find at Parkway. So please don't dare to be like Diotrephes, who even went to the extent of telling others in the church that they could not be hospitable. And they told, he told others in the church that they could not be friendly. So do not be the source of disconnect. You will not find a sounding board here to give all of your slander and all of your complaints. That's not Parkway. This is a place that is unified together. We are so diverse. We come from different backgrounds and different teachings, but we are centered around the key doctrines of the scripture. We are unified on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we live our lives in front of the individual priesthood of believers, we give an account before God of how we're going to live through the biblical principles that we are taught from his word. And now we're responsible to live that out. And we're going to do it in such a way that tells us we're going to continue as God's local body of believers to make an impact, not only in engaging the church members, but also finding a community around us that we can share the love of Jesus. Secondly, the second guy, who are you? There's uh, Diotrephes, and then there's the commendable Demetrius. Verse number 12 is all that we see. And it, it, what's interesting going into verse 12 is, is verse 11 kind of disrupts John's flow in this thank you card to Gaius. I mean, already in verse number 9, he's going from thank you, Gaius, thank you, Gaius, to now, guys, watch out for Diotrephes because of A, B, and C. And then verse 11 comes along, and you think, why? But then we have to remember that Every word written in the word of God is certainly directed with God and it has a God-given purpose of why we have it. And so John urges Gaius not to imitate the evil. And again, he doesn't mince words. He's not, he's not sugarcoating this. He calls him and his actions evil. 
And so he points to a life that Gaius can and should imitate, that which is the polar opposite of Diotrephes, and that which is good. Notice how he emphasizes this in verse 11. He says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil. I've just written several paragraphs and words about it. He says, follow that not which is evil. He, he, he points it pretty clearly. He doesn't say, don't get wrapped up in somebody who could potentially have a negative influence on you. Don't get caught up in the drama of Diotrephes. Hey, Gaius, just learn to ignore Diotrephes and his personality and how he acts. He doesn't paint it like that. He says, what I've just told you about Diotrephes is not to be ignored, It's to be called out as evil. And he says, avoid it, but follow that which is good. Because he that doeth or practices, that word doeth is habitually and continually. It's not just a has done, it is a doing continually. Do not follow that and who is habitually and continually doing evil because they are not of God. They have not seen God. So this transitional statement is very key in the text. And now he comes to verse 12 and he says, Demetrius, he hath a good report of all men. Don't you like the absolute there? All men. He says he has a good report of all men. How that word has traveled, we don't know. But he has a good report of all men. Potentially, he was the deliverer of this letter from John to Gaius, maybe. Uh, Whoever he was, he was definitely known by John, and he was a man with honorable Christian character. And so we see this Christian character lived out. What was told is incredible truth to his exemplary actions that we can learn from and we can imitate as well. His reputation was well known to be one that was godly, humble, and kind, Here's what two great preachers of the past have said about character. Charles Spurgeon said, A good character is the best tombstone. Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. D.L. Moody said, If I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. We know that character, not the direct quote, but I've remembered her hearing it. The character is what is, is done and lived out when nobody else is around. Character is who we are in the dark. Character is who we are when we're alone. So we may ask, what does this Christian character look like today? And we may even say, how in the world can I raise my kids in this day and age so that we, they will grow to be genuinely godly adults. Now, parents, raise your hand. All parents in here of kids that are in baby years all the way to college years. Raise your hand, okay? Now, keep them up. Grandparents of that same bracket, raise your hand. Grandparents. All right. So, looking around, this is many of us, and I want to give you some thoughts and guidelines of how do we help? How do we raise kids today, whether my children or my grandchildren, so that they can be genuinely godly adults one day? Now, some of us are just praying them through, right? We're just like, God, please spare their life. Let them get to the end, and somehow they figure it out, right? But here's what our responsibility is today, parents, grandparents. Look to use your parental example and the wise use of unscheduled, teachable moments. Let me say it again. Look to use your parental example and the wise use of unscheduled, teachable moments. 
the milk spills at the dinner table, and instead of using that a time to let out all of your frustration because it has a good excuse and reason, use that as an unscheduled, teachable, teachable moment about grace. Let's figure out that daddy makes a lot of mistakes on accident in his life. Well, but they were being careless. You know what? We're careless too. I'll never forget this story that Natalie said about when uh, she got yelled at at her mom because she spilled a glass of milk at the table. And in the midst of after cleaning it up, three minutes later, her mom spilled a big glass of milk across the table. And the whole family couldn't do anything but laugh. And then mom had to say she was very sorry. But you know what? Those things happen. So use the parental example and the wise use of unscheduled teachable moments. And then show them how to apologize by doing it yourself. Learn to say, I'm sorry. Learn to look your kids in the eyes and say, daddy lost his temper. Mommy was tired and frustrated and that is no excuse for how I handled that situation. Hey, you know, there, there, is a, there is a balance here because there are direct acts of disobedience that have to have a raised voice and stern, swift movement to handle the situation. But it doesn't hurt us sometimes to take a step back, cool ourselves down before we handle the situation with the correct act of punishment that is properly handled for the situation. And there are plenty of times where we act too swiftly, too boldly, and too explosively where when we look back at it, we need to humble ourselves and come back and say, Daddy is really sorry for that. Then, show them how to control anger. Don't let them get away with explosive responses. It is not cute. It is going to produce something you will not be able to control in 10 to 15 years. Handle the situation immediately. There is never a reason for them to respond in a fit of anger. They are individuals just like you. We all have our flesh and we're all carnal. But also in the midst of that, it has to be dealt with properly. So don't let the attitudes escalate. Don't let anger uh, come through. Next, don't make excuses for them. Parents and grandparents are really good at that. We make excuses in the midst of our embarrassment Oh, they're just, they just, they haven't had a nap today. You know, that's, I'm, I'm going to kill them when I get home. But they just, you know, they, they haven't had a nap today. Uh, or, you know, that's terrible twos. You know, terrible twos. I, ho- I hope it works itself out to terrific threes. Oh, it's just terrible threes. Uh, I hope it leads to fantastic fours. And, oh, it's just furious fours. I hope they just get out of this house. You know, I, I don't know where you're at. But the reality there is that we have to not make excuses for them. Use these teaching moments to guide them to a Christian character. Now your three, four, five, six-year-old may not even be a Christian, but you're going to use that and say, honey, one day when you do something like this, there's going to be a, a Holy Spirit that's going to convict your heart and make you feel bad for how you've responded because they look at you in the eyes right now and they say, I don't feel bad for that, but that's because they're not a Christian. But one day they will. And so you prepare them for that. and You teach them for that, to look for that, to experience that, and to see their life shaped and changed by God. And then teach them to serve others. You want a young person that's going to have Christian character as you teach them that life is not about them, but serving others. And if you need a good example, take them to Philippians 2 and teach them Jesus. 
and show them what Jesus did. And then if you want to show them more New Testament examples, you show them Paul and you show them Peter and you show them these men and women. Look in the Old Testament and study Esther and study Ruth and teach your princesses that this life is not about their royal crown, but this is about them serving other people. And then talk about overcoming pride in yourself. Teach them about overcoming pride. They're going to be so excited about projects they've completed or accomplishments they have done. And you teach them that this is about glorifying God. Bailey has the privilege on Wednesday nights to play an offertory. And, uh, and, and before she gets ready to come, we pray together that she would do this to the glory of God. Then we teach her, and, and kids have to learn, they go through that process, that when you're done and people say, Bailey, that was really good, or you're, you're getting better and you're accomplishing, the nice thing, polite thing is to say thank you, right? And that we're just thank, you know, glad that they're polite in their response. But then the next step after that politeness of thank you is, thank you, praise the Lord. Praise God for my abilities or talents. Praise God for my accomplishments. Hey, your child comes home with all A's on a roll. We want to put the bumper sticker, the license plate. We want to put it on a neon sign in our front yard. And I know that's all good and grand. But the reality is, is they are shaped by God's hand. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. So teach them at this moment about overcoming pride in themselves. And then look for teachable moments to build up instead of tearing down. Yes, be stern with them and be consistent, but be loving and graceful. In those moments of dealing with, with young people, be stern and consistent. Consistent's a key word there, by the way. Because you can be stern all day long, but you can only do it sporadically. And then you can try to be graceful and do that sporadically, but in parenting, as a grandparent and as a parent, we need to be consistent. Here's a couple more. These are human beings who think, act, and process things in their mind. Now, you who have teenagers in your home, you're like, I'm not sure if they think, act, and process things in their mind. They just exist sometimes. But the truth is, is they're human beings, and they're constantly thinking. And as you take a moment just to sit with your child and have conversation without an agenda, you begin to find out, why are they scared? Why are they doubtful? Uh, why are they uh, struggling? Why do they have a difficulty obeying right away? Why are they having conflict with friends? Why are they having such trouble with relationships? Why do they have such conflict with brother or sister or dad or mom? And when we can just stop for a moment and realize we're talking to yet another human being, not a little mini robot that we're trying to program and form for the rest of their life, but yet another individual that we can have this conversation with. And then really, when we think about that, now, none of this will happen in our life if we're not filled with Christian character ourselves, Because we cannot be the parent or grandparent that says, do what I say, not what I do. It just doesn't work. I don't think it ever really did work, and it certainly doesn't work today. It's the saying, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And so we have to be filled with Christian character if we want to pour that into our young people and our teenagers and our college students. Here's the last thing, is that Demetrius lived the truth. We've kind of gone in a big circle here with Third John because the emphasis 
two weeks ago was being a helper of the truth. And in order to be a helper of the truth, we have to be living the truth. This truth, again, is not being honest abes or or honest engines. This is a call to live and love the truth of the scripture and the truth incarnate Jesus Christ. John 8, 30 And as he spake these words, Jesus said, or many believed on him, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my words, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And then our worship is fueled by the truth. What we did this morning in lifting our voices together in worship, it was not fueled out of the excitement of being able to sing. It was all fueled by living and absorbing the truth. That's why we are very specific, purposeful, and doctrinally based, Christ-centered in the song selection of our ministry, because it has to point to Jesus, the truth. John 4, Jesus saith unto her, the woman at the well, he said, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what, you know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, But the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father. Here it is, in spirit and in truth. Spirit is out of the heart and in truth is that of the scriptures. And the Father seeketh such to worship him. So God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, out of the heart and in truth from the scriptures. Where the truth prevails, the Lord is glorified in his church. So John ends this letter in a very similar fashion as he did 2 John, as you see verse 13 and 14. He notes that there's a lot more on his heart that he wants to communicate, but he's not going to take the time to write it with pen, with ink, and paper. But he is going to come for a visit, sit down, and have a face-to-face conversation, and to handle these issues with people problems. Now, John is probably well into his 90s, it's still important for him to show his love and appreciation to the ones that he has ministered to and with for so many years. When you think about interaction with people, I, I couldn't help but end today's message with a very important story from a very reliable source. It's a good old Charlie Brown story. Now, you know Charlie Brown always seems to make his way into our illustrations, but here's Good old Charlie Brown's young friend, Linus. You know who we're talking about. You know his sister, Sally. She wasn't the sweetest one of the bunch. So Linus, he once declared a view that is shared by so many of us. Here's what happened. He had just told his big sister, Lucy, that he wanted to be a doctor when he grew up. Now, you remember, Linus, he once said that big sisters are like the crab grass in the lawn of life. So that gives you a good illustration of who Lucy is. So Lucy couldn't believe her ears. Linus, you want to be a doctor? You, a doctor? That's a laugh. You could never be a doctor. You know why? Because you don't love mankind. Well, Linus came right back and immediately he countered and he said, I do too love mankind. It's just people I can't stand. (laughs) Indeed, if it weren't for people, this world would be almost a perfect place, wouldn't it? But when you eliminate the people, the problems will soon disappear. But unfortunately, few of us would really even survive in that type of solution. So it's not the people who determine who we are. It's our heart. It's our pursuits. It's our passions. It's our character. And today, after studying 3 John, I want you to ask for yourself, Diotrephes or Demetrius, who am I?
Who are you? And so as we pray, let's not just be hearers of the word. May we be doers today. Lives changed into the image of Jesus Christ.